0: You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa, dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI. Or the University of Iowa. It's Friday, January 29th, 2016, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes My Own Private Idaho, which plays at Film Scene tomorrow night, January 30th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing Welcome to Leith, which plays at Film Scene Tuesday, February 2nd at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. Finally, we'll be discussing the Oscar nominated documentary shorts, which open at Film Scene Sunday, January 31st, and will continue to play throughout the following week. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co hosts. We have Katherine Steinbach. Welcome, Catherine. Howdy. We have Changmin Yu. Welcome, Changmin.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And I'm Leah Vonderheide. I should mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in UI's Department of Cinematic Arts. Let's start with our first film, I Own Private Idaho. Catherine, can you give us a little bit of context before we begin our discussion of this film? Oh, yes. So,
2: My Own Private Idaho is a quirky, meandering, hallucinatory travelogue. Mike, played by the late great actor River Phoenix, is a narcoleptic street kid who turns tricks for the occasional dollar. We don't know how he's arrived in the Pacific Northwest streets, but we see flashes of his past, a past which becomes more idealized and more elusive as the narrative proceeds. Mike's whole life is surreal because of his random sleep episodes and his haunting past. He comes in and out of the story much like we do. Mike's only real bond is with Scott, another young hustler played by Keanu Reeves. They travel together for most of the film, though they have profoundly different backgrounds. Scott is a restless son of a prominent family, and he's reluctant to live out his affluent yet controlled destiny just yet. The relationship between the two is loosely inspired by Prince Hal and Falstaff in Shakespeare's Henry IV, and this gives a strange weight to much of Reeves' dialogue in particular. So they wander around Seattle, Portland, and Idaho, they fly to Rome, and then they return to where they began. Mike says that this road will never end, it probably goes all around the world. And that's really the power of this film. Dramatic moments are few and far between, but we travel with the, t- view, with the two and feel their yearning and just keep on going. I couldn't help but sigh throughout this viewing. River Phoenix is so compelling and brooding and acts with such delicacy. But I also noticed that he seemed rather strung out, which is sad but makes sense considering his untimely death at 23 from a drug overdose two years after this film was completed. Sigh. So to begin our discussion, let's address Phoenix as Mike. Were y'all as affected by this performance? How did this main character strike you more generally as a guiding force of the narrative? And how does Keanu Reeves measure up as the other lead actor?
0: Yeah, River uh, would have been a, a great actor. I mean, he was a great actor, and he really would have been one of those actors that would have been a leading man like uh, in in great works. And I'm sure he would have collaborated with great auteurs all throughout his career. And we would have been really grateful to have him around. Um, I I like his, his brother is um, Joaquin Phoenix, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, another really talented actor and um, Keanu uh is not super talented (laughs) i don't know like watching this movie didn't change my mind about that He's nope (laughs) always keanu reeves playing keanu reeves playing whatever character he's been asked to play i mean he just doesn't kind of branch out of his own persona so um i mean i didn't dislike him he he was kind of suited for this um shakespearean prince role uh that he's playing but that's, a, that's what I got. I don't know. What you think, Changmin?
1: I think on Bender, people are always complaining about character actors <laughs> in that sense, you know, like because last time we were complaining about Channing Tatum and this time we're talking <laughs> about Keanu Reeves. So, I mean, again, I like him and I think he knows how to pick a role and I think this role particularly suits him. And, of course, I think uh, actor's blood flows in the Phoenix family and I think you can also see that delicacy in Hawking Phoenix acting and, like, and how he's always so silent but like, always can give you that kind of emotional burst. Mm -hmm. I think, like, that kind of acting, that kind of um, um, profound emotion can also be found uh, in River Phoenix acting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think that, so River Phoenix was about, uh, maybe a little bit older but about the same age as Leonardo DiCaprio I feel like he would be mm. a similar like uh, strangely beautiful but also it, like kind of immersive into roles uh, kind of actor so it's weird to think about you know all of these roles that DiCaprio has taken on in his like acting you know challenges <laughs> not, not his like kind of you know Titanic-y type things but um, but The Revenant, you know, getting so much attention this year, I feel like that could have easily been a river, a River Phoenix, uh, perhaps. And considering they have like very similar politics and one of the, you know, really horrible, sad things about River Phoenix passing away uh, is that he was such like he was such like a a good guy in Hollywood. He was like a vegan and an activist and and was like kind of on the, a straight and narrow path for uh, all the mainstream media knew that's what made it so shocking um but yeah it's weird to think about what place that actor might have especially based on this kind of
0: role which is very
2: you know like door opening i think
0: having this is a complete aside but having a drug habit and being a vegan has got to wreak havoc yeah <laughs> on the body, obviously i mean I don't know, not obviously, he didn't survive. But that's, I, n- I never knew he was a vegan. That just seems like, whew. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Just <laughs> really
2: putting your body through it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I know. I feel like, uh, in a sense, like, I don't want to imagine him being another DiCaprio because DiCaprio lost his young beauty in all these films. Like, when he, when he grew up, like the oldest... Because he I wasn't know. a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Yeah, yeah. I,
0: I don't think... Di- yeah, DiCaprio has... I totally understand the comparison for when they're young mm-hmm. and the idea of them both searching to become better yeah. actors and find themselves really meaningful projects, but... Uh, DiCaprio is always DiCaprio playing something too, I think.
1: Yeah, because I know I just cannot move my eyes from his square face, you know, like <laughs> because the face is so square. Every time I see him, I just like, okay, DiCaprio being DiCaprio. I mean, I think that's another problem for method acting because, I mean, again, like sometimes you see Meryl Streep, you think like she's being Meryl Streep. Again, like she's been so versatile, but still she's Meryl Streep land the ca- character in that sense. So, I don't know. I feel like that's I know one paradox of method, method acting in essence.
0: well, I don't feel comfortable comparing Meryl Streep to Leonardo DiCaprio, but, but know. for I example no, you no, like <laughs> Brendo
1: like can I mean I can I'm
0: trying to think of who i mean other than uh joaquin uh I'm trying to think of like who River would have reminded me of i mean like could he have been an Oscar Isaac or something or like. Um I don't know.
1: I think um. I think so because he
0: was also
2: was a musician. Yeah. His last full <laughs> role was uh Peter Bogdanovich's the thing called Love, one of my favorite uh country music movies um with Sandra Bullock, a young Sandra Bullock and River Phoenix and Samantha Mathis, Dermot Mulrooney.
0: We should play that. <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, so the we should get to the other huge thing about this film, which is, so the director, Gus Van Sant, is considered to be a prominent auteur within the new queer cinema movement, this early 1990s push in indie filmmaking towards new representations of gay or at least non-heteronormative identities and relationships. Um, so let's address this film as a film about gay youth. Um how might the tone and content of the film contribute to an understanding of queer identity or queer representation on screen? Um, do you think that this context gives the youth and street culture reflected in the story more impact?
1: Uh, so I I love Gus Van Zamp for, for one reason. I think he's one American independent director, Alien David Lynch, who should receive an Oscar for all of his films, especially... I mean, I love Elephant, for example, and I yeah, also yeah. Lo- love his debut, Malanoche. So I think, like, um, his depiction of homosexuality is always very, very profound in the sense that um, he knows how to capture the delicate interactions between these people, and, and always his camera is very, very intimate. Following his characters around and trying to see how they see themselves in the mirror. For example, like we we see that a lot in this film or in Malanoche or in his later films. So I think, like, again, this is, I mean, this kind of queer representation in American independent cinema is one way to, in a sense, normalize or to, to, put all these different homosexual representations back on the scene to to let people see that they are no different from us or no no different from any other people so i think Gus Van Sant was very successful in doing that
0: or not no different because there is a push in in a lot of that ni- a lot of the 90s queer cinema to break out of heteronormativity or even homonormativity to say it is different like but it's still instinctively human, and I think encourages people who maybe have never even considered the bounds of their own sexuality or desires or fantasies to think about the ways in which we really box ourselves in unnecessarily, um, and to think about the like more fluidity in in one's identity or in one's relationships. Um, so it's not no; di- it is different. It's kind of all about difference, as opposed to being about. Oh, we're all the same. It's sort of like we're all totally different, but that's so human. That's that's, you know, <laughs> distinctively human.
2: Yeah. Well, there's this great scene in the film um that is so like weird and funny, um but also just meta uh, because there's a scene inside A sex shop where there's magazine covers, and all of a sudden Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix are populating the covers of these magazines and they're talking to each other and they're talking to us and they're, you know, kind of talking about desires. And it's so funny because, so one of the things about about this kind of street culture and especially you know the kind of gay hustling that's going on or or kind of equal opportunity hustling <laughs> that's <laughs> going on yeah um that um that this you know this is kind of a subculture that's that's repressed right um and then and then all of a sudden we have these two beautiful men who are embodying these characters and then being put on the covers of these magazines within the film um As the kind of beautiful representations that they are, so it's so it's so strange, like the kind of tricks that Van Sant is you know performing with visibility and and the kind of you know just really manufacturing Reeves and Phoenix as icons right and as like kind of queer icons, even though neither actor is is particularly in their personal life
0: and um, that it, so this is before Keanu Reeves had gone on to do. He was in Nowhere, right? Yeah, yeah, which is late '90s, maybe. Is that my?
1: I think this is before the Magic. The Magic is his like breakout film, right? Yeah,
2: it right, was but, late
0: '90s. Yeah, but Nowhere is um, is that late '90s as well? I'm yeah. just saying, like, it's interesting because he is. Pl- those are t- these are two roles where he plays mm-hmm. a gay character, mm-hmm. um, and so clear on some level was circ- you know circling, um. The social sphere is is a gay icon, on some level. Yeah, you know, even yeah. if, even though it's a very sort of manufactured um, image on his part. I have a question uh, in the understanding of the Shakespearean part of this story. So, Mike, who's Keanu Reeves, is the Prince Hal character from Henry the Fourth. Scott. 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 Sorry, mm-hmm. Scott, who is Keanu Reeves, is the Prince Hal character from Henry the Fourth, and Falstaff isn't Mike. Falstaff is Bob, right? I think that that's. Uh, well,
2: um, from all that I've read, um, so Falstaff is, is kind of an, is a knight who befriends Prince Hal, right? Um, and, but yeah, I think the dialogue is shaped that like, it's kind of two films. There's Mike's kind of journey and he doesn't really have a lot of the Shakespearean dialogue and then Scott and Bob act out and and the and Scott's father mm-hmm. enact out a lot of this kind of shakespearean dialogue and it's kind of like two films being merged mm-hmm. um but yeah that that sort of these that the falstaff prince hal relationship can be mapped on to to either i don't know
0: oh interesting yeah well understanding them to be totally separate it is fascinating that he's a, he's taken two separate stories and we just keep seeing them intertwine and in two separate genres right so mm-hmm. like as if sort of Mike is part of '90s new queer cinema, and and Scott is just part of Shakespeare, and yeah. somehow they're <laughs> interacting in in interesting ways. Um, which at first I was uncomfortable with, but then I was I was intrigued by how and why he brought these two stories together. Um, the idea of of giving queer readings to Shakespeare seems like a really smart thing to be doing yeah. in the '90s, in terms of you know mapping out identities that go back hundreds of years as opposed to thinking that we've invented queerness all all of a sudden. I don't, I thought that kind of... It At first, it bothered me because it felt disjointed, but then I kind of... I really felt like a critical exercise. It was... I no, enjoyed it.
1: I just had a difficult time imagining um, real Phoenix as full stuff because, like, full stuff has no delicacy at all, like, mm-hmm. in old original scripts or whatever. So, like... I mean, I see the the comparison. I, and I see there is also... Because like when Henry IV uh, went back to take his throne, he deliberately separated his old connections with full because that's his secular life. That's mm-hmm. his life or that's all... Um, I don't know, some kind of personal connection, but all about his desires, et cetera. So I think that also maps onto Liz very well yeah and maps mm-hmm.
2: onto mike and yeah, yeah so i think it yeah it, it kind of spreads across the whole narrative like Falstaff is kind of spread between it's really interesting it's it's a strange meandering film but it's so like complex on on all of these levels
0: All right. Well, we'll end on that note. Again, my own private Idaho uh, plays at film scene tomorrow night, Saturday, January 30th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiwa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Welcome to Leith.
2: Did you know that birthday parties help build confidence in kids?
1: Yeah. Did you know that giving kids less sugar before
0: bedtime helps them sleep better?
1: Oh, totally. Did you know that friendly kids have more friends?
0: Everybody knows that. Hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? I didn't know that. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at film scene. Let's move on to our second film, Welcome to Leith. Changmin, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this documentary.
1: Sure. So Welcome to Leith is a timely documentary about the radical right-wing movement and how it instigated turmoil in a small town. Leith is a small town in North Dakota with roughly 30 population. The story begins when Craig Cobb, a famous white supremacist, moved into this little community. At the beginning, people didn't find anything weird about him. But as the time went by, cops started buying lots of land in the neighborhood and contacting other supremacists to move into this town to establish a base for neo-Nazism. Conflicts and threats ensue. Leaf is under siege. While we were watching this film, I wonder what the goal this film is trying to reach. Um, sounding the alarm for all other Americans? Attempting to curb the growing influence of right-wing groups? In the film, we see how a certain argument for equality can be twisted and deformed to uh, to suit people's purposes. For example, some white supremacists in the film actually believe that the non-existence of white advocates means a form of oppression. These neo-Nazis see any corrective action for minorities as the infringement of their rights. Obviously, this is such a a misconception. But I also see this film as a beginning to engage other issues. Of course, Nazism should not be tolerated, but we can also see the film as an allegory for a conundrum that America is facing. What if the people who move in are not Nazis, but Muslims who are going to change the culture of the town fundamentally? So, my fellow venturers, let's talk about your first impressions.
0: It's interesting, yeah, raising this question of well, if you read this entire situation allegorically and and did somehow assume that instead of it being uh, a neo-Nazi group moving in, but some other actual minority group moving in and a town reacting and saying, we don't want our town to change this way. We don't want our town influenced by this new culture, this culture that we find repulsive. Um, and the film isn't necessarily inviting that reading but the neo-Nazis themselves do because (laughs) it is so effective to say we're just expressing our First Amendment rights of our freedom of speech, our freedom freedom of ideology and how could you possibly want to encroach on our rights to just express ourselves and to live the way that we want to live and so it's such a frustrating um, as you're being repulsed by what they're saying it is frustrating to simply want to shout them down and say you have to stop saying that you can't say, say that you can't all move here you can't change you know you can't overtake our government essentially um through democratic means um when that's what you want to say
2: yeah i this film i think is such a litmus test for <laughs> your like boundaries of civil rights right because you you're like no take them down by any <laughs> means necessary but at the same time they they are harnessing this very common very fundamental kind of argument right and and you just you just don't know how to navigate it and and they you know it in a lot of these interviews um uh they seem to be very uh, reasonable, quote unquote, and very like harnessing of law and of really uh, standing their ground when it comes to um, their legal rights. And and so it's so difficult to then be kind of put in this position where you're just watching it all unfold. Um, and knowing that you're so fundamentally opposed to these horrible things, um, that this group stands for and that they, you know, promote in their writings and, and they're trying to literally, you know, create a town that would, you know, embody, um, their values. Um, yeah, you just, you just don't know how to shut them down effectively or how to legally shut them down, you know?
0: And even when the town becomes uh, savvy, you know, there's protests, etc. But even when they become savvy to the kinds of ordinances that they're going to start passing to uh, run them out of town, it's lots of things that one imagines has been used and wielded against minorities trying to move into certain neighborhoods yeah. throughout yeah. America's history. So yep. it's the sa- it's like these same evil tactics <laughs> that I don't want to support, but I don't know You know what they are put into such an odd conundrum. This this little town in North Dakota.
1: We come back to the fundamental question: whether means justifies ends, right? Like, can you do this to people if even if they are evil to a certain extent? But like, I find one of the most fascinating um, aspects about this film is that. Um, all these white supremacists are using internet to bully other people. Like, yeah, yeah, like internet is their new weapon. Like they can use this to post some uh personal information online and help other people to track you down and et cetera, et cetera. So like that aspect is, I mean, it's still so forceful in this faraway little town. Like this is not like, you know, Chicago. This is like North Dakota, but people are still afraid of the power of the internet. So I think that that part is like, how are we going to, um, I think the internet itself is also how, one of the factors that contribute um, into the growing of these right-wing movements.
2: Oh my God, totally. Yeah. Because these, the kind of, you know, proponents of these ideals are so kind of disparate, right? And, and then the internet can bring them together in this kind of virtual community and can bring them together to do all of these strange actions. Yeah, like just listing people's information online in a particular way that's really just frightening and insidious. Um, I mean, yeah, it it seems like it's its so odd because this seems to be like such like old world, pre- just like... Strange ideology that belongs from, in a different time, but also they're just harnessing the internet and kind of the virtual community.
0: And it's so. To spread it. And we learned <laughs> learn that um, the government essentially stopped following these groups or cracking down on these groups on 9 yeah. 11. And 2001 is really when the internet itself takes a huge exponential turn in terms of how it begins to infiltrate our lives, you know. So 2001 is, like, just pre-Facebook. It's a few years before YouTube. It's obviously before Twitter. So, like, right when the government looks away is when the internet becomes this incredible resource um, for people who have... uh, to organize for for good or evil, you know. Like, it just becomes this incredible tool.
2: Yeah, and to... Yeah, and just... Have a place where they're just super not scared of sharing these opinions. Like, I'm sure, you know, later when we talk about uh, Claude Lansman's show, uh, like, every time I try to teach a segment from that huge documentary, I, you know, I go on YouTube, and I try to find clips, but you scroll down to the comments, and it is a frightening situation really? just recently i was i was doing this uh for a class and oh my gosh i was like no 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 no. just yeah. like
0: anti-semitism oh big time just, yeah. yeah yeah i mean people are
2: just revisionist discourse like boop just and you're just like how how in the whole world <laughs> is this happening <laughs> but but it's just so hyper visible and oh it's it's so disturbing
1: so let's talk about the resurgence of neo-Nazism throughout Europe and America because this is related. So after the Paris terrorist, uh, terrorist attacks, the socially conservative right-wing politician Marine Le Pen suddenly saw a surge in her own support. So what do you think the this, uh, the cause is? And I think the problem seems dire in Europe than in America, in essence, right?
0: That neo-Nazism is has a firmer hold in Europe yeah. than uh, it does in the U.S. I, I mean, maybe, but we – I don't know. The U.S. has mainstreamed a lot of our racism in a way that is really uncomfortable, right? I mean, our current election, Republicans <laughs> are, like, outdoing each other right now to see who can be the most racist and xenophobic, uh, mm. and they're proud. Of, you know, they're just, like, patting themselves on the back about it and so it doesn't feel like maybe the neo nazi rhetoric that we hear in something like welcome to leith and can exist in, in maybe is it can have a scarier rhetoric but we've really mainstreamed a lot of a lot of this ideology in the US i don't think we need to like feel more secure here <laughs> than in europe
2: <laughs> well i think that I think that a lot of times people feel more secure in the US maybe because of that rhetoric and because of this, the conservative rhetoric of like strong borders and blah, blah, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in Europe, there is way more of a of a situation of porous borders that I think maybe actually does spur the more kind of uh, vehement neo-Nazism, uh, especially when it comes to like any these you know, um, actions, you know, uh, these kind of domestic terrorist actions that, that are against, you know, uh, immigrants and, and the kind of opening of borders and, and these different things like that. I think that that might be true, but certainly there's this kind of idea in the U.S. that maybe we, you know, uh, you know, because it's so instilled in, in a certain kind of rhetoric that, I don't know. I don't know. I, what don't what know. I think that. we
0: mobilize <laughs> the same kind of thought when somebody like Trump can say, I'm going to build a wall because like Mexican immigrants are all rapists. I mean, that's, yeah. how is that any different than the kind of anxiety that um, Europe might feel and because of that anxiety might, you know, uh, fuel uh, neo-Nazi groups? I don't know. It seems like the same to me. But okay. maybe yeah. I should maybe I shouldn't <laughs> be so flippant. I mean maybe there are the ability to organize, self organize for one, is particularly scary in something like Welcome to Leith that but I, I don't know. Well, yeah. like
1: my my response to this is that I think Europe is facing like a serious immigrant problem and all of course like usually neo Nazist uh, rhetoric um, so a surge after you face that kind of problem like because like you are constantly dealing with foreigners and you have all these visa problems you have like oh uh, um, blue collar workers think that all these immigrants are going to come in and snatch their living and whatever so I think that in that sense like I think uh, media coverage coverage in, um p- puts more attention on um, Europe's situation nowadays, especially with Syria. But let's talk about... Uh, but it doesn't
2: mean that the American politicians won't, like, capitalize on, yeah, on yeah. that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> totally true. Celebrate <laughs> so re- representation of Kenan Dutton, an Iraqi veteran and cop, is quite intriguing because they almost seem like schizophrenic to some extent. Uh, when the film crew went to interview them, they are always quite articulate and logically sound. Not necessarily correct, though. But when we see the other footage, they almost seem frantic. This di- discrepancy strikes me as the central trope of this film because we are always, I mean, dragging to the, to both sides of this story and all their consequences. So, how do you see this kind of uh, portrayal of these people?
0: I don't. I, schizophrenic wasn't the word that I was thinking of. Uh- watching it but i thought for Cobb, sort of sociopathic in the way that he is so cold and calculating in everything mm-hmm. that he does he's very calculating in the way that he wants to provoke and the way that he wants to organize um he's very smart um and then he just seems to prey on other people who maybe aren't quite as smart, I mean, uh, as smart as him. Uh, What's the other guy's name? Dutton. Dutton. Um, Who doesn't seem maybe quite as intelligent. And so, I don't know, it just... Gosh, uh, it was so frustrating. I just, like, even, like, rethinking about (laughs) it right now, It's like, I'm reliving my frustration of just thinking, like, oh, I just wish I could... You know, you just want to, like, get in there and just, like, start teaching about history and cultural constructions of race and, like... (laughs) You know, (laughs)
2: so I have a big fundamental question. Would y'all have left the town? I probably would have been like, bye. (laughs) I I just, it
1: would have left. But then again, (laughs) that's because we are, in a sense, metropolitan.
0: And we're pretty, we've all moved from other places to live here. I mean, these are people who have either, they've lived there for generations or they live there for very specific reasons. and.
1: And they move from least small town to last small town. So, like, least small town life is all they have.
2: But they're so scared once this, like, you know, conflict starts escalating. I just, like, I guess my instinct to, like, fly away, you know, um, is, you know, maybe that's... But then
1: completely- again, um, watching this film makes me feel, I'm not saying safer, but in a sense more secure just because like you see how those people like championing a certain kind of nazist rhetoric but they don't have any kind of real action because like like with all this media coverage only one people with his family moved in yeah so like i think they they feel threatened but not that threatened because yeah. like you see like oh you you made a splash but the real influence is kind of tiny
2: yeah i don't know
0: all right uh we will wrap up there again welcome to leith plays at film scene tuesday february 2nd at 6 p.m as part of bijou film forum the screening will be followed uh, by a discussion with Ryan Lenz of the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's also featured in the film, uh, in person at Film Scene, and co-director Christopher Walker via Skype. For more information on Bijou Fil- Film Forum, check out Bijou's website, uh, bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our third and final film, let's check on the weather. It is currently fair and 39 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, mostly cloudy, a low of 29. Tomorrow, Saturday, partly sunny with a high of 44 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. In our last segment, we are discussing this year's Oscar nominated documentary shorts these five films feature diverse subjects from across the globe body team 12 follows the grueling work of a body removal team operating in the midst of the 2014 ebola outbreak in liberia chow beyond the lines focuses on the teenage and young adult life of chow a vietnamese young man born with severe birth defects caused by his mother's exposure to agent orange Claude Landsman, Specters of the Shoah, revisits one of the most poignant and impactful documentaries of all time, Landsman's Shoah from 1985, to explore the making of the film and the simultaneous unmaking of the filmmaker. A Girl in the River, The Price of Forgiveness examines Pakistan's social and judicial systems which fail 19-year-old Saba after her father and uncle attempt to kill her in the name of family honor. Finally, Last Day of Freedom animates Bill Babbitt's account of his brother's struggles with PTSD after the Vietnam War, which led him to commit murder and ultimately face the death penalty in California. All five films tackle serious topics and complex situations, and only one of the five has anything near a happy ending. It's interesting to consider the intended audience of these Oscar nominated short documentaries. Alongside the live-action and animated Oscar shorts, all five will receive a brief and limited theatrical release in January and February. And three of the films, Body Team 12, Claude Lonsman, and A Girl in the River, are HBO documentaries that will debut on HBO between March and May this year. But I am still curious about the kind of filmgoers and movie watchers who are drawn to these works. Catherine Chung-min, do you imagine these short docs attract the typical arthouse cinephile or are they meant for political and social activists or budding filmmakers on the festival circuit or just bougie cable subscribers hooked on prestige television
1: I don't think these films are for your typical cinephiles just because like again like if you know Claude Landsman you probably would want to see the documentary about him and how, I mean how the film was made but like I think for cinephiles uh to watch all those films is to make all these different connections in the history of cinema so like to think from that perspective usually um for for example best foreign language films would have uh, a larger attraction to them so i i know I, I i don't know what is actually the audience of these show films catherine what do you think
2: they definitely struck me as more activist oriented, um, this year. Um, because I think, you know, a lot of times documentary shorts can be like funny or light or, you know, um, you know, a little bit playful. Um, and these were very like specifically, um, oriented towards like persuasion in some way or other. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I thought that they were way more kind of activist oriented, but that doesn't mean that normal audiences wouldn't like them. I just think that, um, especially for watching all of these in in one sitting, um, it's very much like a a, a mobilization to action <laughs> in a, in a, in your mental space. I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, I had never. I don't think I've ever watched the Oscar nominated documentary shorts before, and I've for almost a decade watched the live action shorts and I've watched animated ones in the past. And I, it just occurred to me, I've never sat down, I've never gone to the theater to watch these. Uh, I never sat down and watched them before. So I don't know why that is. Like, I mean, I like documentaries and I like short films and you know, these are the, you know, the best. Probably can't say that at all, but, um, uh, but they're, they're all quite good. So Chow Beyond the Lines is, I would argue, the only film with a resolutely hopeful ending. Chow overcomes his physical disabilities to pursue a lifelong dream of becoming an artist. And what was particularly striking about this ending, uh, to me, is how young Chow is at the beginning of the film. He's a young teenager living at a care center for children born with disabilities from the effects of uh, exposure to Agent Orange, Thus, the filmmakers, who are Courtney Marsh and Jerry Frank, couldn't have known how his story would progress when they began filming. Uh, but does the, dis- does the success of this film rely on the success of Chow himself? Or put harshly, would Chow's story be worth telling if he hadn't become a successful artist? And more broadly, in the genre of documentary, when is a story worth telling?
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I, I guess I asked this question of myself while watching... This film, um, uh, yeah, how? Um, I, maybe they just saw that he had this, you know, kind of talent and motivation. You know, kind of, I because I think you can see that early on in the film when he's even fifteen. I think right um, that uh, that he has this work ethic, right? That he's just drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing, and that's clearly the thing that's um that's motivating him. But yeah, we see over the course of the film that he's uh kind of, you know, he loses confidence and then he gains confidence and, and he kind of goes through these, yeah, young adolescent things when it comes to trying to figure out, suss out your talent, you know, and what you can do with it for your life. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I, I think it would be too horrible to explore his story if he wasn't able to somehow... um you know move beyond his kind of physical limitations right like that it would be you know um just like I, I think a harrowing tale of one person kind of stuck in their own limitations and and oh uh, that would be so I don't know I think that um it's so difficult to know whether or not these filmmakers intended on making a, a hopeful documentary or not um I think
1: image-wise or uh, representation-wise, this film reminds me of both Night and Fog and Freaks. And I think it is almost like a combination of the two. So it also evokes the same anger in me just because, like, how are we going to find the real culprit uh, behind all these victims of Agent Orange? It's a little bit like um, Night and Folk in that sense. Like, how are we going to find the true murderers behind this tragedy? But so- the f-
0: but Chow Bei on the Lens doesn't... I mean, it, it talks about the U.S. doing this dreadful thing, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't actually go into that. It just... But do you think that that's the underlying question of the film?
1: Yeah, especially for the f- first half of the film, because like we follow child around in this space, and we see all his other friends suffering from the same same illness. Like and like like you also want to find the cause, the cause behind this, and did they you know get any kind of compensation? Yes, from a little bit from the government that like uh. Um, a fact that we know um, in the later part of the film, but then again, it, there's this urge to find the real culprit is still there. O- although the film did give us a kind of happy ending, but that kind of physical defect is still there, like imprinted on the screen. That is something that you cannot forget. I think.
2: So you're saying that like it didn't even need to have a happy ending for this underlying kind of purpose that you're. Right, that you've read from it. So, yeah. well, yeah. and
0: I mean, so "Last Day of Freedom" uh, and "A Girl in the River" are films that leave us with two subjects who have been f- the system fails them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they are the limitations that they are in continue to be the limitations that they are in, and and the do- the purpose of the documentary seems to simply be mm-hmm. for both of those how messed up is this, you know? And it mm-hmm. does seem to be a bit of a call to action. And the Chow Beyond the Lines, I suppose, is also a call to action because it's impossible, I think, to watch that, um, you know, particularly as an American, and think, man, that's, you know, do yeah. we still, do we do anything about this? Does the U.S. government give aid to Vietnam? Are there organizations that are, try- you know, cleaning the rivers? What You know, like, you can't help but think, yeah, mm-hmm. obviously this is bigger than Chow, even mm-hmm. though he's been successful in his in his, in his his work. Um, I'd like to spend a little time discussing Claude Lonsman Spectres of the Shoah, directed by Adam Benzine. Uh, Catherine, you've already been talking about this, but we're all students and teachers of film, so we're all familiar with this. Um, and even if we haven't seen all 10 hours of it, I'm assuming oh <laughs> we have all um, watched on many occasions the barbershop scene that features the confession of Abraham Bamba, who was forced to cut women's hair before they entered the gas chambers at Treblinka. Um, This new documentary revisits that scene, and Benzine makes a point to question Lonsman on his methods. Did you feel Benzine was able to bring anything new uh, to light, anything new to light regarding this particular scene or about Lonsman's documentary generally?
2: I guess I didn't think it did anything. It didn't break any ground or or expose anything that I you know, didn't already know. I mean, I guess that's not true. There's, there's not regarding the bomba scene, but, um, regarding their kind of covert recording, um, uh, of Nazi leaders. I didn't know that backstory, um, that Landsman and his assistant were like, just like physically assaulted when they were discovered, um, secretly recording. Um, that, that was an interesting part of the story. Um, but yeah, the Bomba scene, I mean, it's it's difficult, I guess, to um to really get at anything. I mean, uh, he he recycles his original um landsman uh within the within this documentary, recycles his original um, you know, spurring on of Bamba, right, in in the scene where Bamba says, I don't wanna do this, I can't I can't go on. It's too hard. It's too hard. And he just says, you must, you must go on. Like, this is important. And I know it's horrible and I apologize, but you got to do it. (laughs) And, um, you know, that, that is like a huge formative uh, scene. And whenever you talk about documentary ethics, whenever you talk about, you know, cinematic ethics uh, overall, um, and there's just, it's almost, there's almost nothing that can add to that kind of primary footage I think. Um, so I didn't feel like there was anything profoundly new happening with in that exchange over that scene. Um.
1: I agree with Catherine.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I kind of yeah. felt that way too, but I thought maybe I was...
1: No, no, no. You well, I wasn't being generous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this is uh, the first short out of five I watched. And I was kind of surprised because I think this is pretty good filmmaking. I like the uh, the short interviews they they did at the beginning with Marcel Ophuls and mm-hmm. Richard Brody. And they were just like, oh, you know, Lansman is a bastard, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> 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 yeah, I like that. And also, uh, Marcel Ophuls, according to our professor Stephen Unger, is also a bastard. So like, <laughs> that adds to that. So like, but then again, because Shoha is Always about the unrepresentability of the Holocaust, like he, um, the director Lensman has to tell a story from the perspective of death of the non-survivors. So, I mean, when 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 the director tries to make another documentary about the making of Shoah, it weakens the force to a certain extent. So,
0: yeah, I. It- I did appreciate the the story that I had never heard before about trying to get uh, the secret tapes of uh, the Nazi higher ranking officials, uh, and 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 the fact that they were physically assaulted. I didn't know any of that, but the revisiting of that scene that so many of us have seen before, um, and also the reason why we've all seen it before is the kind of things that we just discussed, like how it's filmed, how it was staged. The, the prompting of the director. So to hear him just kind of recap that, to kind of rewalk us through that, felt odd. Like, why 30 years later did you want to hash out something that we've been hashing out for the last 30 years? And also
1: because, like, that scene is so emphatic because it is one part of the eight hour or 10 hour documentary. Mm-hmm. So you have to put that thing into its context to see its force working. Mm-hmm. And I think the film totally ignores that part.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe that just means that you know HBO assumes a lack of knowledge about Shoah that that enough time seems to have gone by um, from that um, document, and and just like maybe the the limiting nature of the format of that document. Right? It's more like an archive. It's it's ten hours, and and it's you know, incredibly, um, moving and, and, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to just sit down and watch anyway, you know, um, even if you'd had 10 hours to watch it, you know, it's super difficult. So, um, maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, the, the impetus behind this film is that A, people haven't seen show B, enough time has gone by, people have forgotten show a. Uh, and see, we need a, a a smaller format to kind of recapitulate all of these.
1: You the, this is the influence of a fast food culture.
0: Yeah, <laughs> of a what culture?
1: Fast food culture. Fast
0: food this is like fast food. <laughs> it's show just very up. content. It's awful. Content. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion of this year's Oscar-nominated documentary shorts. Support for Care UI is brought to you in part by the Englert Theater. The Englert highlights the talents of local performers, artists, ensembles, and also hosts regional, national, and international touring performances. The Englert is located at 221 East Washington Street. For more information, call 319-668-2653 or visit www.angler.org. Welcome back to BG Banter on KRUI Iowa City. We're currently discussing this year's Oscar-nominated documentary shorts. So two of these films examine judicial systems, the American system in Last Day of Freedom and the Pakistani system in A Girl in the River. Formally, however, these films couldn't be more different. Uh, For example, while A Girl in the River employs live-action photography, Last Day of Freedom juxtaposes recorded audio with black-and-white hand-drawn animation. And while A Girl in the River includes interviews from the victim, her attacker, attackers, the police investigators, family members on both sides of the dispute, community elders, and lawyers, Last Day of Freedom relies on a single interview to convey its story. How did these formal choices impact your perception of these two judicial systems' processes?
1: I mean, that's a good question because, like, we, we have another very, very good comparison on Netflix, which is uh, making a murderer, right? Because, like, I feel like somehow in order to talk about the judicial system, you have to give the audience enough time. So sometimes I think, like, um, in A glow in the River, the director somehow rushes to the ending, to a conclusion mm-hmm. that needs to... Of course, the culture also demands it because mm-hmm. it, it needs to be resolved. Uh, the culture, like the neighborhood, has to be reunited again. But sometimes, like, I think um, the judicial system is problematic just because uh, it is so infused with bureaucracy or or a certain kind of cultural biases, um, it becomes impossible to untangle all these different connections uh, in the workings of a case, right? Mm-hmm. So in essence, um, I think a girl in a river is still very successful, but it could use a little bit more time. Right. So well, it's me. the same
0: thing that fails her is what fails yeah. us formally, right? Like <laughs> exactly. is that, is that hurried nature of, yeah. of of demanding the resolution.
2: Well, I think that the scale of these two stories is so different because of the formal, you know, uh, context. Because we basically get um, the older brother um, of the you know um, incarcerated and then executed. Um, killer, uh, in Last Day of Freedom, get his personal story, right? He's, he's telling us what he remembers. He's, uh, you know, um, putting a lot of emotion into all of the information that he's conveying. You know, we see these beautiful animated sequences of him weeping and, and, um, and even flashing to certain kind of, kind of childhood memory type, um, images you know it's it's very much like like a you're you're in this particular man's head and his emotional center right um versus the way different scale of a girl in the river which is you know let's given in the title i mean it's she's this is one girl's story in a society that that allows this thing to happen quite frequently and that and that honor killings are uh, becoming more and frequent, more and more frequent, and um, and they're being kind of hushed away from the judicial system, um, uh, hushed and rushed away from. Yeah,
0: well, and really reinforced by the judicial system. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah,
2: yeah, and just kind of, but but kind of omitted from even the the jurisdiction, right? That somehow this this incredibly criminal act is no longer criminal, right? Um, so yeah, it's way more of an institutional a story uh in with a girl in the river uh, several institutions even um versus one person's like kind of mental history and emotional history and and it's very subjective as as the animation lends to right this kind of really subjective almost hallucinatory experience
0: and yet i think that last day of freedom is also pointing to all of the larger systems that are failing minorities veterans People with mental health issues, yeah. um, people who are too poor to get kind of the representation they need in in prison and in sort of legal processes that would then lead to a capital punishment conviction. Um, so it is opening up, even though we're very much in in in, in one man's mind. It is opening up and pointing to um, all of these other uh, problems in the in, in greater systems. Uh, all right. One last question. This year's Oscar nominations have sparked rightful outrage regarding their lack of diversity. Uh, and Body Team 12 features Garmai Sumo, the strong, thoughtful, and articulate, articulate Liberian woman who has dedicated herself in the most grueling way to eradicating Liberia of the deadly Ebola virus. And yet if this film were to win the Oscar, the people who will be recognized are Bryn Muser, the film's white male producer and David Darg, the film's white male director this is mean, but I'll add it. <laughs> <laughs> Whose IMD profile says he, quote, loves to surf and play guitar, end quote. Sick. Should we simply roll our eyes, or are these men owed some respect for their dedication to humanitarian work?
1: I think this goes back to uh, the call to action that uh, Usman's have been issued, I don't know, 50 years ago, that African people need to make their own films, they need their own representations of themselves. And again, like, I don't... I'm, like, again, like, the director and the producer are willing to go into the, uh, the Ebola area and make this film. So, like, in and some sense... And found an
0: incredible subject, right? Yeah. They put her in front of the camera. So, in some
1: sense, like, you have to give him some respect. But, like, then again, like, if they don't... These librarian people, if they don't even have all this uh equipments, how they going to make a film for themselves. That's that's a bigger technical or economical issue, right? So I mean, yes and no. That's there.
2: Yeah, I I have to say, uh Body Team Twelve was my favorite of of the shorts. And and I just I yeah, I was like so um enamored with uh with this woman who was so courageous and and so thoughtful and and um yeah, but and and it's very odd to consider that um y- you know you don't usually think that the documentary world is as whitewashed as as mainstream Hollywood. Um it just doesn't I don't think that it it becomes like kind of a mainstream assumption. Um but yeah, it's 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 so disturbing when you realize that and I don't know what the uh solution is because I do think that um, both people of color and white people should explore diverse issues. <laughs> you know, um, I so I, I don't really know, but um,
1: but this is also a long-standing tradition in documentary filmmaking. Yeah, I that, mean, that's, just yeah. like look at Robert Flaherty, look at yeah. John hoosh yeah. So no, I know um, we are not criticizing them, but this is just like there. <laughs> ju- it's effect. just a symptom
0: of
2: the world that we live in.
0: Yeah, essentially.
2: Yeah. But and and it just shows that docu- the world of documentary film, much like the world of Hollywood, yeah, it just is, it's a it's kind of a white industry, and and it's so uh, odd, and the exploitation of subjects that are not <laughs> white, right? Uh, are, you know, is part of the kind of legacy of it. Ugh.
0: So, body team team twelve is your favorite, Changmin. What was your favorite?
1: Last day of freedom.
0: Last day of freedom. Yeah. I think my favorite was A Girl in the River, maybe, but I just, maybe it was just like the outrage it sparked in me. Mm It was just so palpable. Um, All right. Well, we'll see what happens at the Oscars. Uh, Again, the Oscar-nominated documentary shorts open at Film Scene Sunday, January 31st, and will continue to play throughout the following week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Scene and Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and long-standing role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter, Catherine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Changmin, it's always a pleasure. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.